our third scripture this morning is Hebrews chapter 8. Now the main point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and the true tent that the Lord, and not any mortal, has set up. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Hence, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They offer worship in a sanctuary that is a sketch and shadow of the heavenly one. For Moses, when he was about to erect the tent, was warned, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But Jesus has now obtained a more excellent ministry, and to that degree, he is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted through better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need to look for a second one. God finds fault with them when he says, The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their ancestors on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I had no concern for them, says the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach one another or say to each other, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and growing old will soon disappear. Please pray with me. Author of life, we thank you for your words. As we reflect on them this morning, send your spirit to dwell within us and transform us in our hearts and minds and souls. Amen. I'd like to begin this morning with a thought experiment. Get in your mind the image of a typical American. If you're having trouble, that's understandable, because there isn't really such a thing as any one person who represents a typical American. If we think about how people got here, we see a number of different paths. Some people have ancestors who lived here before the United States existed. Others came to this country fleeing religious or political persecution. Others still came here against their will forced into slavery, while others 
came seeking the promise of jobs and fortune. If we try to think of the typical American in other terms, the picture doesn't get any clearer. Looking through a religious lens, we see that Americans are Christian, Jewish, Muslim, Sikh, Jain, Hindu, Buddhist, practitioners of indigenous traditions, spiritual but not religious, or none of the above. Through an economic lens, we see that some Americans are the richest people on the planet, while others live in crushing poverty. Through a political lens, we are progressive, conservative, and every variation in between and beyond those designations. What we see is that although American is a shared identity, what it means is impossibly complex and multifaceted. Now, hold on to that complexity, keep in mind those many facets, and step back in time with me to the ancient Near East. Go back to the world of the early church, shortly after the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is the world in which Paul lived and worked. It's the world in which the author of the letter to the Hebrews wrote the scripture we heard this morning. Now, picture the typical Hebrew. Do you have a clear picture? Or do you find yourself struggling to come up with one? The thing that I'm trying to get at is that this picture needs to be just as complex and multifaceted as the picture of America. If we are trying to imagine a typical first century Jew, what we need to realize is that this was a group of people spread across the Mediterranean and the Near East, for whom some had ancestors who lived in the land prior to it becoming Judea, others who came because they were fleeing persecution, others still who had been forced into slavery, while others came seeking jobs and fortune. If we think religiously, ancient Judeans would have worshipped the God of Israel, but would have lived in a world where an uncountable number of other deities and spirits were worshipped or feared. Economically, the people of Judea would have included the most wealthy kings and administrators of imperial Rome, but also the most economically distressed widows and orphans. Politically, the people of Judea were everything from conservative supporters of the imperial hierarchy to revolutionaries wanting to overturn the whole system. To speak about a letter to the Hebrews, then, requires us to be aware that this letter has to be written to a specific subject, subset of the Judean community, one with a particular point of view and a particular interpretation of scripture. The complexity of the situation is especially important as we approach chapters 8 through 10 in this letter. These chapters speak at length about the establishment of a new covenant, a better covenant. As we heard at the end of our reading today, the scripture says, in speaking of a new covenant, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and growing old will soon disappear. It's a short leap from this scripture to the idea that God has forsaken the Jewish people as a whole in favor of Christians. 
Once that point is reached, it's not much further to believe that Jewish people are morally defective, that there is something inherently wicked or evil about them. And by the time that someone gets to that point of view, they're only a hair's breadth removed from the kind of horrific violence that unfolded in a Pittsburgh synagogue yesterday. So how do we read the letter to the Hebrews in a responsible way? How do we understand covenant in a way that doesn't do harm to other children of God? First, in reading the letter to the Hebrews, it's important to realize that we have no idea who actually wrote this letter. What we do know is that it's cited by Clement of Rome in 96 CE, so it couldn't have been written any later than that. This means that it might be written in response to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 CE, in which case the language about a more perfect heavenly temple might be capitalizing on, or perhaps rationalizing, the destruction of a structure that had been central to the practice and identity of the community. Now this information doesn't help us get any closer to figuring out who wrote the letter, which means that the only information we have about the perspective of the author comes from the internal evidence of the text itself. Neither do we have much sense of who this letter was written to, once again forcing us to rely on the evidence of the text. So what we can reasonably assume about this letter based on the time and style of its writing is that it is addressed to people who would have understood themselves to be Jewish by an author who would also identify as Jewish. This is a crucial starting point for our interpretation of this letter because it reminds us that any notion of a new covenant must be understood from a Jewish context. To think of the new covenant as applying to Christians while the old covenant applies to Jews is a fiction of time fabricated after over a century of division. Once we start digging into the text, it becomes apparent just how deeply Jewish this document is. One of the ideas that the author works with throughout these chapters is the idea of one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. This particular imagery draws on a prophetic and apocalyptic tradition of a heavenly throne room. In this tradition, the cosmos is understood to have a true heavenly being that is shadowed by our earthly institutions. John J. Collins, one of the foremost experts on apocalyptic literature, notes that this imagery is used in First and Second Enoch, the Testament of Levi, the Apocalypse of Abraham, as well as more familiar texts like Daniel, Isaiah, Ezekiel, 1 Kings, and Revelation. In fact, in Daniel 7, we actually see the connection between one who is like a man or like a son of, um, of man, given eternal dominion over all peoples, nations, and languages. So not only is the heavenly archetype a Jewish convention, but the son of man, which is a moniker used by Jesus followers to describe Christ, is also a convention used elsewhere in Jewish texts. Another convention that's employed in both prophetic and apocalyptic literature is the theme of restoration for the Jewish people. 
In other words, there's a very common notion among the authors of these genres that there is a need for the Jewish people to reform their behavior. In many of these texts, it's clear that the authors are looking at the state of the world around them, recognizing that folks are not living the kind of life that God calls them to, and calling for a renewal of the relationship with God. We know that the author of the letter to the Hebrews is drawing on this tradition because the new covenant that the author describes was actually first described in the prophecies of Jeremiah. So what exactly is all this business about a new covenant? If we look closely at the covenant in question, we realize that it's the Mosaic covenant, the agreement made between God and the people of God at Mount Sinai. In other words, the tradition that the author of Hebrews is picking up on is one that questions the interpretation of the law in Jewish theology. And this is where I need to tread carefully, or else I will end up slipping into the same kind of anti-legalistic language that characterizes anti-Semitic theology. It can be easy to simply frame the argument of Hebrews as a rejection of the alleged legalism of Judaism. In truth, the argument is more nuanced than legalism versus grace. And because I am not an expert on understanding the law and scripture, I have to turn to the views of those more qualified than myself. In seminary, I had the good fortune to attend a lecture by Marvin Sweeney, a prolific scholar of the Hebrew Bible. The central idea of his lecture was that Sabbath functions as a means for restoration and renewal, not just personally, but as a theological principle. And the thing that struck me about his lecture was the number of ways in which the law is reimagined and reformed within scripture itself. What this means for our reflection today is that we should bear in mind that the author of Hebrews is one of many people who is proposing a reform to the understanding of the law. The author is not somehow saying that Judaism is dead, nor are they saying that the Jewish people have been cut off from God's grace. What is simply being said is that our relationship with God has changed because of the offering made on our behalf by Jesus Christ. Finally, let us keep in mind what it means to have a covenant with God. A covenant is an agreement between two parties, in this case, between God and the people of God. And the covenant has changed because God changed the covenant. Sure, the scripture says that God has no concern for those who did not continue in the covenant. But if that were true, then why would God keep trying to perfect the agreement? If God had no concern for those who fell away, why would God take human form? Why would God make an offering of God's self on behalf of all humanity? Why? If God had no more concern for the law, would God not simply make a new covenant abolishing the law? Instead, what is declared 
is that the law will be put in our minds and written on our hearts. The law still exists, but God changed the agreement so that it would be easier for us to be obedient. The new covenant does not remove the need to walk in the ways of God. It takes away our excuses for not doing so. A concession is made as well. I will remember their sins no more, says the Lord. In a twist, God confesses that God has been too unforgiving. It's not simply that some of the people have fallen away, but God had also not been faithful to the covenant. So the new covenant is as much about God recommitting to a relationship with humanity as it is about humanity being recommitted to God. For nearly two millennia, our understanding of the covenant between God and the people of God has neglected the Jewish origins of our faith. In order to make a distinction between Jesus' followers and other Jewish interpreters, some early church fathers set themselves against Judaism entirely. The tragic consequences of such theology are visible in the shooting at the Tree of Life synagogue yesterday. It is visible in the annihilating fires of Nazi death camps. It is visible in centuries of pogroms and crusades against the Jewish diaspora. It is far beyond the point in time for Christianity to reckon with our anti-Semitic theology. We must be more nuanced in our reading of scripture. We must recognize that God does not abandon people. Where our theology cuts people off from God and where it produces hatred, we must reimagine it. God is love. To be true to God is to embody the love of God toward every single person. Amen.